I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire, a podcast for Christians who are rethinking their faith and need a safe place to doubt. As we wander through the spiritual wilderness, we want to find and follow God wherever the pillar of fire leads. And just like God's people in the Bible, we get lost, we miss the point, and we don't have all the answers. But maybe that's okay. We're on this journey together. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Even on my Welcome everybody back to Following the Fire. I'm super excited about this episode. We are we have Jared Bias with us. Uh, Jared is an author, speaker, podcast host, uh, co-host of the Bible for Normal People, and um, I'm a huge fan of that podcast. By the way, I just wanted to throw that in there because, um, and I've rec- we've recommended it to many people on this podcast, and I wanted to thank you, Jared, especially, and pass that on to Pete too, for the work that you're doing on the podcast and elsewhere, trying to bring in the, the scholarly side of things, and but keeping the faith aspect of things as well. Because like in my personal deconstruction, as it moves along, my relationship with the Bible has become very complicated. <laughs> and, uh, and you're honestly, your podcast is just about the only Bible related podcast I still listen to because it just makes, I, it, it, hit, it hits all the right points, but uh, I'm going to turn it over to you to let you introduce yourself a bit and tell us a little bit about your backstory, and then we'll get into talking about Love Matters more. Yeah, great. It's great to be on. And and yeah, my background a little bit, just to give the short version, I grew up in Texas, um, kind of the faith journey, grew up in Texas as a as a Southern Baptist and and a charismatic, so more the Southern Baptist from my my dad's side and more the charismatic from my from my mom's side. And then in, in high school, went to uh, started going to a Presbyterian church by myself because hmm. the, at least the Presbyterian church that I was attending, and, and generally true, was a little more academic, a little more heady. It fit more how I thought about faith. And uh, so then I went to Liberty University, which was uh, Southern Baptist of, of sorts, and was kind of the uh, reformed outsider um, there and got a degree in philosophy. And, and so I, I say it that way because in, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've always been trying to find my tribe and just bouncing around from, from place to place. And uh, then ended up going to Westminster Seminary, which is where I'd always wanted to go. And kind of then felt like as soon as I felt like I was home and I finally was uh, where I was meant to be within one semester, I was like, oh, this is not for me. Um, and so I went to get a PhD in presuppositional apologetics. I always wanted to argue about Christianity. I thought you can get paid to argue about Christianity. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> presuppositional. So, I've never heard that. Yeah. Presuppositional. There's, there's kind of two fields of, of thought when it comes to defending Christianity. One is more philosophical, which is about presuppositionalism. So it's a little um, more on the philosophy side. And then there's like classical or evidential, uh, I forget what they call it, evidentiary. I don't know what the yeah. made up term is, where it's more on like science and more of that kind of reasoning. Um, okay. And so I was more on the philosophical side. Anyway, that's for yeah. like the three people who would care about that. But um, <laughs> so within one semester, I was like, oh, this is not the kind of Christianity that I would want to follow. It just it, it didn't make sense to me anymore. And so I jumped over to the biblical study side. Um, and from there, I was a, a pastor for a number of years and then taught at a university, um, taught Bible, ethics, uh, intro to philosophy. And then 
uh, wrote Genesis for Normal People with Pete, and that was 10 years ago now. Hmm. And uh, then we just kind of kept in touch and kept working on things and working on things, and that all eventually turned into the Bible for Normal People. Oh, wow. And how long have you been doing that? When did you? How many episodes are you? We're in six. Now? We're at two hundred and five or six right wow, now. So we're five years. This is the sixth season. So, wow! Congrats! Thanks. <laughs> so, um, let's moving on to the book uh, "Love Matters More" that came out not too long ago, right? Mm-hmm. I this this book really hit me pretty hard. Uh, I in a good way. Um, it's one of these. It's one of the books that uh, that I have like the trifecta of I've got the audio the digital and the hard copy <laughs> because you never know <laughs> but it kind of came along for me anyway it came along at a time in my life when I was trying to re- figure this stuff out and I was really at the point where I'm like you know what really matters is the love and especially Brian McLaren's pr- book that he just wrote the faith after doubt Mm-hmm. He, he kind of gets into that near the end. He's like, it, all that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes. And then I came across your book. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, we got a lot of questions, but you know, how, how did that book, how did the book come about? Like the, the concept of it and writing it? Yeah, it came really, there were, I think probably three, three factors all concurrently. So the one, I'm going to try to keep all three in my head right now and I might forget one, but the one was definitely going back to my background where Christianity was, it was always very argumentative and combative because that's both fit my personality, but also how I was raised to think about the Bible is to be right about it. And that was really important that we get our facts about our faith right. Um, And not only that, but because we have God on our side, we have the facts about reality and the world right. And it's important for us to share all of those things with other people. Um, But for me, it was about being right because I liked control and it was a nice way to be in control if you knew the the mind of God. And so that was sort of what I was after was getting it right. And then secondly, there was this class, which I talk about in the book that I taught as a pastor and it was called Four Skeptics Only. And we would basically, it was the spouses of um, Christians, but they would come to church because it was a good family social thing to do. And they weren't Christians. And so we thought, well, why, why do we make them sit in this service all the time? Why don't we have a different class for them where they can express their doubts and hopefully recognize they're not going to get struck down just for having doubts and asking questions. And um, so we, I did that class. And then that got me thinking about a lot of this as well. And then thirdly, um, the other is looking back, I started thinking through as I started to understand that maybe getting it right isn't sort of the foundation of Mm -hmm. faith, recognizing how many people in my life, mostly women, who had tried to express that and were sort of marginalized for that. It was those were not the people that we elevated or developed into leaders. It was the people that knew all the right things. But the people who were really the bedrock of community and love and support were sort of marginalized in faith communities. And and I started to find that problematic when I looked through the New Mm. Testament. Um, So those three things, I think, really were coming together when I was starting to write the book. There's this uh, kind of central idea that we've heard a lot, uh, which is when people say they're telling the truth in love, which is directly from a Bible verse. But there's this feeling that I think a lot of us can get in our gut somewhere that like, man, I know you said the word love and you said the word truth, but 
there's something not quite right with the way that you're doing it. But it, it's it's such a, a difficult thing, especially if the person is correct. And I, mm. you you talk a lot about this uh, this idea of telling the truth in love. How has that been used, and what kind of led you to kind of rethink that idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's been weaponized. Um, and and I. I want to be careful when I say that because when I, we talk about weaponizing things, I think we can demonize the people who are weaponizing it. When really what I think was happening were that people were afraid. And when we're afraid, we can put walls up and we can be uncomfortable with things. And, and that, gets, that gets projected a lot of times in ways that are not loving, that are actually kind of unloving. And so I, it was weaponized for sure, but I think a lot of times it was truly believing that the most important thing I can do for you is tell you the truth because that was programmed into me. That's, I mean, the idea of the gospel itself was there is this packet or unit of information that you need to uh, believe to be true. And that's the thing that will get you to heaven for eternity or send you to hell for eternity, whether you accept or reject this packet of information. And so no wonder then that the truth of things was emphasized way over our ethics, our behavior, our love, our understanding, our compassion. Um, that became the emphasis because the gospel itself was a packet of information that needs to be transferred from one person to the next, and I am a conduit of that information. So whenever we're telling the truth in love, we conflate those things because if you understanding this packet of information is what gets you to heaven forever, then truth is love. Those are the same yeah. things because I couldn't do anything more loving than convince you of this packet of information. Yeah, I, I think both of both of us can really relate because just a bit of our background. Um, we're, we both grew up in going to churches of Christ, like okay. very uh, very conservative. You know, no this is like that kind S- of thing. South Church of Christ. Yeah, the Church of Christ in the South, basically. And so, the number one thing you got to do is know the stuff. That's how I was, and so I can really relate to your, your, mm-hmm. your story of uh, figuring that out and, and changing your mind about that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have you got any pushback on that idea that love matters more? Because one along with the knowing everything is the most important thing. I was always given the idea that everything in the Bible is equally important. Right, which it's ironic because the Bible itself doesn't say that, but yeah, that's what we get. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, I've gotten a lot of pushback because I think it again, it um, it's scary to th- to admit that we don't know things, right? So there, there's a lot I I deal a lot with the emotional and psychological aspects of what we know and what we don't know. And again, for me, I would always say that the most important thing is to know things, and that's faith and that's belief. And I would I would I would Christianize it. But at the end of the day, as I look back on it, I just like to feel certain and in control. And it was really scary to not know yeah. where I was going to go when I die. It was really scary to not know what the ultimate meaning of everything is or how to live my life. Or it's really scary to have to make a decision on who I'm supposed to be with as a partner or what path to follow in my career. And so to have a book that gives me all the answers is a really nice thing to have. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely, when I get the pushback, I can almost feel that 
that fear of like, how dare you touch this thing that gives me all of this safety and certainty and security, which is okay. The problem is we end up hurting people uh, when we maybe make those things an idol. That's so, uh, touches so close to kind of my faith experience. And there are several statements that I ran across in the book that were I feel like if if I had not grown up in my faith tradition, I just would have known because they're obvious. But, you know, seeing them written down and and one of them that just whacked me over the top of the head was that certainty is a feeling. Mm -hmm. Because for me, certainty is is the destination when you know all the answers. Right. Like certainty Mm -hmm. is where you get once you're the best at what we're trying to do here with with the Bible. Um, But in my lived experience, I know this because when I have been the most certain has not been when I know the most things, you know, it's when Mm -hmm. I'm just, when I have that feeling of safety and security. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about that love is a risk. So can you talk a little bit about those, those two things? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, they all kind of go together in the sense that uh, we like to think of faith as the eradication of risk. Like whenever we conflate faith and certainty, like if you have the most faith, that means you're the most certain. And yet those, so you're basically saying that faith and risk are mutually exclusive, which is so ironic given how we use the word faith, that it is risky. That's you step out in faith. You don't step out in faith when those things are most certain. You step out in faith when they're not certain. And I think that when we think about relationships, um, and, and I often will make this comparison of, of the relationship with the Bible or the relationship with God, we have to have risk. Um, risk is involved in relationship because the only way you don't, again, is if you can control it all. So the only way I can eradicate risk is if I'm in complete control. Um, and one, that's laughable when we think about God. Of course, we're not in complete control of God, um, but also in relationships. And so for me, my my journey of faith would mirror or parallel my journey of relationships with other people as my views of God and the Bible and my faith began to shift, how I treated other people and how I interacted with them and was in relationship with them also shifted because of these things like my fear of not being in control or uh, needing to be absolutely certain about things, which again, um, love and control don't go together. And we talk, I talk about that some in the book as well. Whenever truth is joined to knowledge and control and then that begins to crowd out love. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's been, at least in my journey, it's been as simple as that, yeah. is the journey toward humility was a journey toward more love. And I was told often the pushback I would get was that I was actually losing my faith in that journey. When in reality, my lived experience was that I was gaining it. Yeah. I've heard similar things myself. Um getting to the point of you know pulling away from the 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 literal inerrant uh view of scripture to seeing kind of a bigger picture of things it the the problem I, i'm finding is it it's hard to describe that to some people mm-hmm. because when when and i i even see like when i read books like this i'm like what would my parents think of this book you know they're they're still very much in the the church we were at before Mm-hmm. And I think you know they would they would read this book and think, well, he's just telling us just to be 
complete relativist. It, it's mm-hmm. like truth doesn't matter anymore. Just toss it in the creek and do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't. That's not what you're saying, but uh, yeah. how uh, well, how would you respond to that kind of a? Yeah, and and I do respond to that in the book because I call that a perfectionist mindset, mm-hmm. and that's how we were taught. I, I was taught that if it's not the inerrant word of God, true in everything that it says, then it's garbage. Mm-hmm. And I think the intent was, well, we don't want it to be garbage. Therefore, we better accept that it's the inerrant word of God. The problem is, if if it's not that, then you feel like it has to be garbage, like it can't be worth anything. And there, there was often this perfectionist mindset of it, uh, because the lure of my tradition was we have the we have absolute reality. We have absolute truth. We have access to reality as it really is. And in fact, that's the real lure of Christianity. Yeah. Like, why would you want Christianity if it didn't give you that? And so uh, for a lot of people that we interact with through the podcast and other things, when they start recognizing that maybe the Bible doesn't offer that, then they just go the other direction and say, well, mm-hmm. then I'm just not going to be a Christian at all. Like, what's the point? And so uh, that perfectionist mindset, I think, gets in there. And the same is with truth, right? So the idea that if we don't have access to absolute truth, then what I'm saying is that truth is completely relative. And that's just simply not true. It's very it, black it and is, white thinking. Right. It, the idea of, and I, I go into this in the book, and it gets complicated because it really is, I think Christians grow up with, oftentimes Christians grow up with a simplistic understanding of what truth is. Because it gets very messy. And it's the same thing with like maybe evolution or something like that, where we mm-hmm. grew up with maybe overly simplistic understandings so that then we can put it in this box and feel really good about it, like we know everything. Um, but truth is a very messy concept that very smart people have wrestled with for a couple of you know millennia, um, but certainly in the last few centuries at a very high analytical level. Um, and so if we think of maybe truth as a process, rather than a thing that we just grasp like propositions, then we might be a, a little bit more, I, I think, close to how philosophers um, would think of, of truth today. But that doesn't fit neatly in these boxes and categories right. of absolute truth. And so, yeah, when somebody says you're just a relative, I would just say, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh. Yeah, I think that it's such a scary thing from from the inside of, of a certainty based mm-hmm. group because part of the walking in truth versus the knowing truth idea mm-hmm. involves things like humility or, or, or maybe knowing that you don't know all the answers or being okay that you don't know mm-hmm. all the answers. And that just feels like you're drilling holes in the bottom of your lifeboat. Right. If you're in a certainty group, like, no, that's the thing that holds us all together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Bible counters this and it's so funny that, we can we can be in a group that is both so intent on just getting everything correct mm-hmm. um, and be using this text that says things like it's you know even the demons believe all the correct things you know zero credit for believing all the correct things yeah. so you know what is it out outside of that and it's it's so scary though because it does sound like you're saying taking away the anchor that we're holding onto or, or the safety rope or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if if we don't have just this thing to be certain in Mm -hmm. but i think that you call it you know it's we're just trying to make it manageable we're trying to make it so that we feel certain right 
instead of mm. a, instead of face that terrifying God on the mountain that um, that doesn't quite fit all the way in that box. Well, and it's only, I think the important thing is to recognize you only feel like you're losing that anchor if the anchor is certainty. I, I would even question why was certainty the anchor in the first place? Hmm. That doesn't seem to comport with what I see in the Bible itself or in the life of Jesus. It's, it's a foreign concept in our Bibles, and yet that became the main thing. And so it's like, yeah, you're losing your anchor. And I say, yeah, I think your anchor was idolatrous. I think the anchor was wrong from the beginning. So I don't mind losing. I think that's the point, is to lose it. So the, there were a couple of times in the book, and this always scares me, it makes me so nervous, when you refer to... To like a ancient scriptural text that's not the Bible, just like I start sweating. But um, uh, this time it was it was so helpful just to reveal my own tradition and and my own interpretation of the Bible. And one of these is the the parable of the flax and the wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind telling a kind of simplified version of that story? Yeah. So again, it's this uh, the idea of. Um, these the master uh, goes away and leaves two which again this may sound familiar for you if you are uh familiar with the bible but there were these uh two servants and the master goes away and leaves you know um uh, leaves to one a measure of wheat and leaves to the other a measure of flax um and i don't know what flax is but you know that's not true actually my wife uses flax <laughs> all the time i'm just pretending not to know um so the, he, the, the story goes, you know, what did the clever one of the two do? And so it really is, he took the flax and wove it into a napkin while the, while the, the master was away. And um, he took the wheat and made it into fine flour. So he made something new from these, these raw ingredients, um, the wheat and the, the flax, where the other one didn't. Um, and the other one just left it, um, left the two ingredients and protected it. And so when the, when the king comes back, he says, you know, bring what you gave me. And he rewards and blesses the one who took the flax and the wheat and made bread and a napkin out of it. And he cursed the one who didn't do that. Um, and then the, the nice thing about this is the interpretation is given there, which is basically, um, I forget what it says here. Actually, I have to look it up here real quick. Um, I think I have it right here. So um, let's see. Sorry, I don't want to get it wrong. Oh, there it is. So the rabbi, yeah, the rabbis tell us. So too, when the Holy One gave the Torah to Israel, he gave it as wheat to be turned into fine flour and as flax to be turned into, uh, into cloth for garments. And uh, you know, scholars will say, in other words, it means that the, the biblical text isn't meant to be left as it was, but to be interpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted, um, meaning added upon meaning upon meaning. That's how we are faithful um, to the Torah. And, um, yeah, I found that to be a very helpful and enlightening, um, text. That sounds completely wrong. (laughs) And scary. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny because we have the same, almost the same parable and, 
uh, I grew up very much with a, an understanding that the parable of the talents, that the meaning is you better work really hard because there's high standards. Like, and, mm-hmm. and the the number of fruit or the number of talents is is equal to conversions. How many people did you get to believe the oh, yeah. unit of correct information? And it's terrifying. And what's interesting is both of these stories have an element of risk in them, right? That they're trying to say like, mm-hmm. who is the the person who is foolish? And in the you know the the parable of the talents, the foolish person maybe conventionally would be the person who trusted these securities markets or whatever he was doing to make money. Right. Like, hey, you you might lose everything. That's that's not a good idea. The smart person kept it safe, and so it seems like we're even being drawn into this idea of make something more out of it or take that next step beyond just burying it in a hole and making sure there are no changes to to that text. And of course, a, an idea of living it out. I, I don't know if, if, if you struggle with this as well. You, you as an Enneagram 8 came to this idea um, because you liked the control of people, it sounds like. I'm an Enneagram mm-hmm. 5, so I just like being right in my mind. I don't need anyone else to know. I just need to have like the mm-hmm. right boxes in, in my mind checked. And so it's so hard for me to take this advice that you're telling us, which is, okay, now what matters is this love part of it and not just believe that correct thing. You know what I mean? And how do, how do I turn mm-hmm. it from my old framework and take this information and actually you know, follow the advice that you're giving? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the trick. The trick is, you know, it's interesting... When I was a pastor and I was, I was wrestling with a lot of these, this was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, what I came to the conclusion of was that I had so much information. I did not need to read my Bible anymore because I had so much information about mm-hmm. what I was supposed to be doing. And I came to this, had this light bulb moment of like, oh, now I, I probably should get busy doing it. <laughs> like, I don't need to read about it anymore. And so Again, what, what my tradition would have done is we turned the knowing into the doing. So the, the reading the Bible was the thing you were supposed to do. Yeah. Like it, we, we, just, we just like collapsed the whole thing into this information gathering. You believe the right things. And how, do you, how are you a good Christian? You pray and you read your Bible. That's like what it means to be a good Christian, which again is not in the Bible itself. That's not yeah. what it says. Uh, but we were able to try because that's the easy thing to do. That's the safe thing to do. And that's a very modern Western way of thinking about things. And so, the yeah, for me, it came to, oh, I need to actually be living this out. And for me, it was overcoming these these messages that I had received in my head. Right. So the tape playing in my head the first day I didn't have a quiet time was guilt and shame. And, oh, you're a bad Christian. And this is not this is not the right thing to do. And how will people know if you're a Christian or you're going to start being susceptible to all these negative cultural messages or whatever if you're not reading your Bible every day? And I just, frankly, once I was convinced that I had been kind of bought into this modern Western system of thinking, I just literally was like telling that voice to shut up. And like, I just ignored it for like Mm -hmm. weeks and months. And that was the risk for me because I was taught that that tape in my head was the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That was my conscience. And if I ignored it over time, I was going to be, you know, if you ignore it too long, you get dull in your conscience and then you're not going to be able to hear the Holy Spirit. And 
for me, I just ignored it for a long time. And what happened is over time, I felt fuller and more free and closer and more connected. And I felt that love start to sort of uh, both well up in me and to be able to accept it from other people. And and so that's where that, you know, Jesus is like, we, we let's judge it by its fruits. And mm. over time, I thought, oh, this fruit is way better than that fruit. Um, wow. And then I realized maybe my conscience was not the Holy Spirit after all, but maybe what I was downloaded with for years. Yeah, so coming back to the, the the parable that you were talking about and how that relates to the crippled mm-hmm. talents, etc. In the book, you use that as the example of how we should be reinterpreting the Bible for the modern times, new situations, that kind of thing. And I, I completely understand this is a very black and white mm-hmm. mindset, fundamentalist mindset I'm coming from. But one of the first things that pops to mind is, how do you know when to stop? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a too far? Yeah, or... there, there is a too far for sure. Um, but I think uh, there's so much we could talk about with this. One, it is when you said we should reinterpret the Bible. I mm. think the first thing for me to understand is we all already do it. Okay, good point. <laughs> So that's actually not even a question of should we enter this or not. I think that's a naive assumption to make. I think we already are doing it. Mm. Literally, that is why pastors preach every Sunday, is to make yeah. the Bible relevant for their context, which is to say to reinterpret it for their context. So we're already doing it. Mm. I find it dangerous to think that we're instead of respecting the original context, and then being self-aware enough to say, you know what, that doesn't make sense to us anymore because that was 2,000 years ago in a very different time in a very different place with different cultural mores and rules yeah. and social practices. Now we have to sort of figure out how that translates to today. Instead of doing that, we just assume that we can just do a one-to-one thing that we're not interpreting it, that we're not reinterpreting it. We're just doing what it says. I think that's dangerous and it's not self-aware and it. So I think it's not a matter of should we or shouldn't we. It's how do we do it responsibly and how do we do it well? That's for me the only question. And yes, can we do it wrong? We can go too far. But I think that's why we don't want to admit that we're doing it is because of the fear that there aren't rules. There aren't black and white boundaries around this. Mm -hmm. Once we open the door and start opening our eyes to see we are already always reinterpreting now we are opened up to like, okay, well, what are the rules of engagement? And there we don't find those in the Bible itself. And that's where the idea of wisdom is so important in the book is because wisdom requires wisdom, right? It is this, <laughs> it, it's this thing that we have to actually bring to the text. Um, so when we read the book of Proverbs, which is the obvious example, we can't read the book of Proverbs without wisdom. Because it's not rules. There's literally contradictory verses back to back in Proverbs. Yeah. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's on purpose because it's pointing out when do you answer a fool according to their folly? When do you not answer a fool according to their folly? The only way you can answer that wisely or do it wisely is to have gained the experience for when to answer them according to their folly and when not to. And I yeah. think the same is with true with biblical interpretation. We have to be wise people shaped by the way of Jesus, and listening to the Spirit of God to do it well. The problem is that's very subjective and unclear on exactly how you do that. We want rules. We want like hermeneutical rules, which we can have. Modern critical scholarship gives us really good rules for how to interpret the Bible, but it doesn't tell us how to reinterpret it for today. 
It tells us how to find out what it meant back then. And interestingly enough, a lot of fundamentalist evangelicalism doesn't like modern critical scholarship and the conclusions that they come to. So when we do have rules, you don't like it. So we just ignore those rules. And then we assume that this other thing that doesn't have rules does have rules and it all gets really messy. That's really interesting because I've always looked at, uh, in, in the past, I've always looked at the Bible as um, it's really important to look at how it used to, how it was originally meant to be understood. Mm-hmm. And um, like, I love the book, uh, reading scripture through Western eyes. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And uh, I remember going through some of that stuff and like thinking, Oh, this is how I need to look at it. But what sounds like what you're saying is like, that's how they understood it then. But mm-hmm. doing what people have done with the scriptures forever is we need to take that as a, like a data point and then mm-hmm. reinterpret it for what that, what does that mean for us now? Mm-hmm. And that's where I seeing the Bible as a relationship has actually been really helpful to me because to do that means I respect the other person that I'm in relationship with. I don't subsume them. They don't become me. They are still their own person. So Paul is still his own person. Um, Paul is his own viewpoint and his own way of thinking about things. And the best way I know to respect that is not to make Paul into my image and make him mean something for me today and say, that's what Paul always meant. It's actually more respectful to say, yeah, Paul's Paul. We are us. And we have to figure out a way to talk to each other so that we can have that common ground. And I I mean, frankly, not maybe get myself into trouble with this, but I think the left and the right, if we're talking in terms of like religiously, right, Mm -hmm. the more progressives and the more conservatives, both do this. Mm -hmm. We're like we we bring Paul under our agenda. And so, you know, Paul would be Paul is whatever we want, like uh, pro-life or pro-choice or it's like those are that's an anachronism. Paul is none of those things. That was not a category of thinking in the ancient world. And so you cannot come to any conclusions about what Paul was on the issue of pro-life or pro-choice. You can reinterpret Paul's language and try to have a conversation um, in this kind of what we call like the merging of horizons here. But we have to be very careful to respect what the ancient writers were trying to write in their context. And that's where critical scholarship can be really helpful to understand what that is. Um, But we have to be very careful that we don't, because we want it to be relevant uh, and we also want it to feel certain, we can sometimes disrespect and and lose those original authors and the original voices because we're desperate for it to mean something for us. Yeah. I often hear the, the, the people trying to make the distinction between is this, is this verse or this command, is this cultural or not? Is this cult, yes. like the, like the, the long hair and stuff like that. It's like, mm-hmm. and I used yep. to be like, oh yeah, well this is cultural. That's not cultural. But now I'm like, it's all cultural. <laughs> yes. All well, of and it. every, uh, there's a history of, of frameworks we use to parse out what's cultural and what's not cultural. Right. So there's the, mm-hmm. the classic one is like moral versus civil versus ceremonial. Mm-hmm. So that's like right. a classic right. way of doing it. Right. So the moral things are the kernel. That's what we have to hold on. Those are the timeless truths if they're moral. If they have to do with civil things, like what happens when your neighbor gores an ox, you know, or your, your, your ox gores a neighbor, um, or if it's ceremonial having to do with the temple, we can, we can get rid of those. The problem is none of those frameworks are biblical. Right. The Bible doesn't say this is how you interpret the Bible. You mm-hmm. take the moral ones. Those are the timeless truths. 
And these are the cultural pieces, right? So in Leviticus 19 or Leviticus 21, we have moral, ceremonial, civil laws all smashed next to each other yeah. because it is all cultural. They wouldn't have made that distinction, and we don't make that distinction. Our cultural practices are our morals in the yeah. same way that our civil discourse is our morals. Those are not separate things. And so that's the, the challenge with trying to parse out what's cultural is we set ourselves up as the cultural norm. We don't understand that we too are part of a culture, which goes back to the beginning of the book, which is we all think we have the God's eye view and somehow we're better than everyone else. We've extracted ourselves from culture and now we can look down on all these lowly past civilizations who couldn't understand what was cultural and not cultural. Yeah, I feel like all of this points to uh, looking at Proverbs and seeing, hey, there's a contradiction here. It is the evidence that we're reading it wrong, clearly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. or or trying to impose our, our rigidity on something. Um, but mm -hmm. when I read Aesop's fables and there's a contradiction, yeah. I understand that the contradiction was there to get me to think about something. And, right. then, and then if I read Aesop's fables and then just memorize them and, and know all of them and then teach them to my children, like I've missed the point because the point is like, this is to, a little pithy way to get you to take something into your life and do it. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's so hard because I've been, I've been wired that the the knowing is the doing, like you said. Yeah. And so I just want to get all the things right. And, you know, like I haven't taken a single step, a, a, a piece of the advice in real life, but I've got, right. you know, a Rolodex of all of this information. Mm -hmm. And I feel yeah. like, you know, you, you say the call of Christianity is to imitate Jesus, not to understand Christianity. Mm -hmm. but all of my conversations are about how to understand Christianity correctly. Like the way that yep. I now understand it, that I did, you know, I wasn't correct last year, but I am correct this year. So now I'll go yep. tell everybody. And I think what's so frustrating is it's very hard for me to find people that I can look to that are not doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. uh, what I want is to find, you know, the people who believe the right thing so that they're all doing it. Like where, where's the congregation where there's a bunch of people who look like Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of like you said, they're, they don't have podcasts and TV shows and they're not writing books. They're like, <laughs> they're just out doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that was actually, you know, very practically for me, my faith became a lot more about practices, which again, the old me was like, oh, that means it's a dead religion, right? Yeah. There's nothing... Nothing worse as a, as a young Southern Baptist in Texas than a Catholic because <laughs> they just like went through the motions, right? Yeah. Like they're just, they're just out there practicing their faith. There's no yeah. emotion, there's no, right? And those practices in the last 10 years have been really, really more profound for me, whether that's, you know, we celebrate uh, Sukkot and we build a sukkah and we invite friends over and we, we do the, like the the embodiment of our, not just, you know, there's, there's definitely like the social practices and sort of social justice and making sure to be involved in all that. But sometimes it's just the religious practices that show that we can participate in our faith without it having to go through our brains first. It's not just let's sit around and ponder the facts. Yeah. It can be an embodied practice and that mm. can be meaningful. And I think that's really has been an important part of my faith journey. I know spring is coming, but I need you right now. I know soon the sun will break through and I'll feel your light.
Yeah, one of the one of my favorite uh, lines. It's the title of your chapter, chapter five. Is if it doesn't set you free, it's not true. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of blew my mind when I when I read the what you were having to say about this. Back mm-hmm. to this, you know, the fundamentalist backgrounds, right? Um, mm-hmm. I always read when Jesus said the truth will set you free, that that meant if I knew the truth and like if I had consumed it all and understood and memorized it all that will set me free. But what you're saying is what if it's, you know, that X sets you free. If, if it sets you free, it is true. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. Um, I guess there's really no and question we know, there, but <laughs> we know, we know from our lived experience that our way of understanding it was so constraining. We know that it did not set us free yeah. because we felt right. like we felt that in our, the things we don't talk about ever or the things mm-hmm. that aren't okay. Mm-hmm. Or the like, you know, my friends yeah. at work that I realize, you know, I can't invite here because they're not conforming. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my experience of truth has been that the truth confines you <laughs> yeah. um, and does not set you free. That's a great way. And something is so, I know this is a little tangential, but I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day where I was like, you know what? I never admitted as a kid was the idea of heaven was so incredibly boring to me. Like I had, cause everyone was like, when you get to heaven, it's just streets of gold and you're just singing hymns all day. And they all seem so happy about it. And I was like, that sounds awful. Like, I, I, I really don't like doing it for an hour on Sunday. I can't yeah. imagine doing it for my whole life. But like oh, that yeah. idea of we just kind of collude with each other around this, like, the because whenever the reason I thought of that, Nathan, was when you said those things weren't that freeing, but we all just pretended that they were. Mm-hmm. And it's like, once we could acknowledge like, well, no, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the thing that leads the wagons is the freedom piece, not the truth piece. Maybe when Jesus says, I've come to set the captives free, he didn't, he didn't say, I've come to make sure you know all the right things so that you feel free. He said, I've come to set the captives free. Like the freedom was the leading the thing. And and that's in the book, you know, love and freedom are the main event. Yeah. Truth is not the main event. And yet we've picked these four or five verses out that talk about truth, and we've made those the main event because our context and our culture wants to emphasize that, and then our need for certainty is the punctuation. And the, I think there's the connection, too, between I am a Westerner, so I think truth means you, you can look it up in the encyclopedia. Right. That's what's true, or that it's not fake news, it's real news. It's, you know correct what happened the facts but you tell us and all all kinds of people are trying to tell us that that truth is being true truth is authenticity truth is the correct path not the correct things right truth isn't the map truth is walking the correct the right path and Mm -hmm. making the right decisions and so we have this this idea that truth will set you free if it's the correct set of facts the the unit of knowing the right thing about eschatology or something will set you free. I know that that's not true, but a, an authentic life that is living the life of Christ, I, I have all this hope that that maybe is freeing, you know, or mm-hmm. that the life I've come to give you life and life abundantly. It's like, maybe there is a, an abundance in that. Maybe there is a freedom in that and that it, it's not contradictory with truth. And it's, it's not, um, it's not just in my brain, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But the risk is that we have to start taking those steps. Yeah. That's the worst part. We have to walk that life. And then at first it may not feel free. It may feel scary. It may feel lonely. Um, but eventually if we keep walking, you know, I talk about just, you know, the, just the uh, name of the podcast here, following the fire. Uh, I think I put it in the book um, of, you know, one of the most profound images for me in this, I got from Walter Brueggemann who talks about, you know, that maybe we might experience God most in the desert. And he gives this, he gives this um, great interpretation of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt and they make their way to the promised land. And he points out as soon as they get to the promised land, they start oppressing other people, right? They set up hierarchies. They start, they <laughs> mm-hmm. become Egypt yeah, as yeah. soon as they get into the promised land. And so he says, so, so they, they leave oppression, then they become the oppressor. And maybe the most authentic faith was there in the desert uh, between Egypt and Jerusalem. And that's the place where we have to follow that pillar of fire by night, pillar of smoke by day, where it is uncertain, where we don't know where we're going. We don't know how we're going to get there. All we know is we have this pillar and we better hold on to that pillar because that's all we got. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was, I kind of thought, I think I talk about it in the book as like a a theological burning man of like, oh, and then we find like we didn't need to get to Jerusalem to find love and community and freedom and peace and understanding. We can just stay in the desert and that's okay. But that's so scary because I was trained to think linearly, like I need a destination. Yeah. What's the goal? How do I know I've gotten there? And those questions become less and less relevant to me every year. Hmm. That's so That's so true because it, I think that I judge myself from my past certainty feeling. <laughs> and so I'm like, man, look at this back. You know, the, the burning man, burning man is the opposite of what we should be like, you know? <laughs> um, um, and, and like the, it's so frustrating to, I want to be proven right by my old standards sometimes. Yes. Oh, yeah. that's a good, um, yes. And mm-hmm. get to, ha- I want to have this, the correctness and yeah. the risk and the, and the, the life part mm-hmm. of it. But mm-hmm. as long as I'm holding on to the, the one hand, I, it's so hard to yep. actually step out and do that. And just, we, the, it sounds like we want to keep getting better and better at the same game instead of recognizing that maybe we need to play a different game. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I think that's, that's, that's a lot of the tough part about this is when you are I just, just now realized like the first part of your book is kind of, here's where we are. Here's like the concern with truth. Mm-hmm. And then you, you pivot over to well, what, how love matters more. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and coming from like my personal story is where truth is or the, the right and the wrong is all that all that matters mm-hmm. people from the outside often look at look at that and look at that progression and as though it is oh that's the easy way out mm-hmm. and what you were just saying about how it's it's hard like this following this fire through the desert thing it's like uh, mm-hmm. sometimes you're really hungry <laughs> yep. and then you start complaining you know mm-hmm. but it's not it's not an easy thing because it, it, it involves changing that source of, um, like Nathan was saying, you want to be judged by your old standards, mm-hmm. but the standards are gone or you realize that they were lacking. Mm-hmm. And that, that progression is a tough thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is hard. And I, you know, I think that's another one of those set of voices, not only in my head, but actually that I hear often is what well, you just, yeah. you know, you just want to go sin and like, yeah. 
you want to go have fun and, and all like it for me. Well, there's two things. One is I think it, I've recognized over the years, like, well, that's kind of a projection. Like, I think that's probably yeah. what you want. And you feel really constrained by all these rules that you've adhered to in the hopes that like you go to heaven one day. That's that's on you. Like, that's not on me. Right. Um, but two, I think it's the underestimating the the challenge and how difficult it is to follow a path of love. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. To say, I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who, by the way, died at the hands of the state for this proclamation and this way of life. Like, this is not a, a way of, of living that's going to come easily. And it was becoming confident with myself because, again, the voices were, that's not why you're doing this. And it's not going to be difficult. It's going to be very easy. While my experience was like, oh, are you kidding me? This is terrible. I didn't choose this. I wouldn't have chosen to leave a life of, like, I was super smart. I knew a lot of the answers. I was good at Bible drills, right? I could find those passages more than anyone. I was a pastor. Like, I I was certain. I felt safe. I had a good community. Like, why would I, who in their right mind is going to leave that to go, like, I don't know what they thought I was going to do. Go do drugs or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Burning man. But I had, I had the good life. I didn't, I didn't want that. Right. Um, it happened to me. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want it. Yep. I have this, uh, the same thing in that this, like I'm in this tumultuous time where I knew my place in my faith community mm. and I kind of equated that with my place with God and my place with like, mm-hmm. you know, I just fit right in the, the shelf in yep. my spot. And now I have this suspicion about, man, I, I'm kind of nervous about planting my seed in a in another faith community or like, what do I do next? I don't want to be uh, unrooted, I, but I'm also um, once bitten, twice shy kind of. And and the, the biggest guilt I felt is that I have a young child. Mm. And so my parents are a little bit nervous. You know, he's not in Sunday school every morning. I'm, I have... I love that I'm so much better at people uh, at Bible trivia and and how much that puffs me up, you know? And so I have this idea like, man, how do you how do you become a Christian if you don't have that? And I realized that I was actually saying, how do I teach how do I put my son in the institution that teaches him the right thing if I'm not gonna live it out for him? Right. Like I I, I knew the answer in the question. It's like, I'm not doing this. So how do I give him to someone? who is like, tells him at least the right facts to do. And I was like, the answer is like, I have to actually like be Jesus and do loving things. And I was like, well, no, that seems too hard. Where's a good Sunday school program? <laughs> like, that's a good substitution. Like, like, give him that foundation and maybe he'll figure it out, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, well put. It's so well scary put. though, because it's it's between like, like that's everything I've known and this this safety and and then like, man, but you know, that, that means I'm going to have to actually start loving people sometimes in front of him. And, and then like, what will that teach him if he doesn't have like Enoch and all the other, like, what if he doesn't have all the context for that love? What's that going to mean? It's going to be burning man. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's again, that's that wrestling when we're in that in between. Yeah. Um, The in between of, of how, wait, wait, how will they learn without this, this thing? It's like, oh, there are other ways to -hmm. do this. And maybe I can lean into that and not be so afraid of those things. Mm -hmm. It seems like like the Jewish tradition is better at wrestling in the in-between than we are 
Uh, I noticed that in your book and other books as well. Like it's okay to not know things. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn just from the like uncertainty and the deep thought and the deep questions that, that maybe don't always come from absolute. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite scholars, John Levinson, uh, who was at Harvard for a long time. It may still be there. Um, but he says the, this, he says, the difference is, you know, the, the scriptures for the Jews, it's a problem to be solved. And for the Christians, it's a message to be proclaimed. Mm. And that actually changes the whole trajectory of wow. how our cultures develop differently. Because yeah. if it's a problem to be solved, it invites questions. It invites debate with God, with each other, within community. We are c- continually trying to solve this problem. And it's through the problem solving that we find our faith. Not at mm. the end of it, but through it. It's yeah. like saying uh, that, you know, we only care about, like, it, for me, it's thinking about going to the gym, right? Working out. Like, I feel like for the Jewish tradition, they're going to the gym to go to the gym, like to get strong. Like, that's what they're doing. You don't say, okay, when, do, when can I stop going to the gym? Like, mm. when do I hit that part where I just have to, like, I can hit cruise control and I got it and I'm good? It's like, Never. Like the thing is the gym. That's what you're doing. Where that message to be proclaimed is once I have the message, that's it. You know, it's more like we cross that finish line. It's more like running that marathon. And then we cross the finish line and we're done and we catch our breath. Like, oh, okay, we made it. Um, and then if someone threatens that and tells us we have to get back in the race, we're like, no, no, no. Like that's not, that's not for me. Um, and I think that I, I really appreciate that because so much is packed into that one little statement of for us, it's a message to be proclaimed for them. It's a problem to be solved. I feel your light. I need your light now. So kind of wrapping up here what does love mattering more look like in <laughs> to us in you know 2022 in america i mean i think it's there's a lot of practical things i talk about in the book in terms of how we approach things and i think that's the thing for me is it's the posture that we take toward our faith and toward each other and i think that's the key it's not it's not even necessarily having to change what we believe so to speak. It's changing how we believe it, the, the grip that we have on our beliefs. Can we have the humility to say, and I say this, I think toward the beginning, really it takes these four words, I could be wrong. What would it look like to embody the idea that we could be wrong? And if we can't do that, that means our identity is wrapped up in what we know. If we can't acknowledge that I could be wrong, it means all of my value and all that I'm holding on to is based on what I know rather than having our beliefs held open-handed to say, I can be in community, I can love people, and I can engage with people, and I can be compassionate to people um, if they hold different beliefs than me, and if they threaten my beliefs, if they disagree with my beliefs. And so that, for me, is what it looks like to be lived out, is to have this um, conviction without it becoming an idol. Uh, an idol right? How do we hold to our beliefs and stand up for them and have conviction, and yet do it in a way that shows that love is actually the ultimate thing. Yeah. And I think that's the provisional nature of my belief. The thing that makes it provisional is love. That's what keeps me from going to that idolatrous place. 
where I know better because when I know everything, I can't help but control. And that control mm-hmm. is at odds with the love. So that humility, that space between perhaps you're right and perhaps I'm right, that's where love can manifest. When we eradicate that, we turn it into control and I start to weaponize it. Oh, that's good. Well, I think I think you've given so much. Like, this is This was such a helpful book for me. I think a lot of the people who listen to our show are in this same spot where they're uh, they're they're feeling like the anchor is gone and it's hard to know, you know, what, like, what steps do I take? How do I, I've just read all the manuals of what exercise equipment should be in the gym. I haven't even been in a gym. I just know what is not allowed in there. You know, should the men and yeah. women exercise in separate spots? That's what I know about the gym. Like I, I haven't lifted yeah. a single weight in my life. Mm-hmm. I think you have a lot of good advice for how to take those steps and also just how to look at this scripture that we we love so much and and actually read it with the lens that Jesus gave us of of love and of freedom so thank you there's so much so so much great stuff in the book um, oh, yeah. that we didn't get to talk about uh, so I really appreciated it thank you for thank you for putting this together and um, I'm gonna this is added to my recommended list where I like buy an extra copy and just hand it to people and slip it in church libraries <laughs> and that kind of thing excellent yeah it was great great to be here I love being able to to talk about it and appreciate you guys engaging with it. Working on any, any new books? I have been working on a book for a while and I, I haven't, I haven't uh, crossed kind of even the starting line yet, uh, if so to speak. It's more, um, the other message I think I get a lot, so I, I kind of think about these messages that we hear. The Telling the truth in love was really the anchor point for this book, Love Matters yeah. More. And this Hallmark, idea yeah. of, yeah, the, the idea of, of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. you know, I have, uh, the, mm. you know, I have plans for you, plans yep. to prosper you. This idea of personal manifest destiny, that God has this very individual and specific plan for us, which was meant to empower and inspire us, right? As a kid, that's what it was meant to do. Like, you can do great things for God. And I think for a whole generation of us growing up in that tradition, it was paralyzing. It created anxiety. And it caused me to feel like a failure. Like, if I wasn't changing the world by the time I was 20, then I must have not been following God's will. Because God's will for me was to change the world by the time I was 20. And so um, I've been interviewing a lot of people and want to talk about the beauty of, um, you know, instead of discovering our purpose, what might it look to create our own meaning? Um, how do we partner with God in that rather than pay, taking a passive approach in our own life? Um, but that's about as far as I got so far. Well, sound, wow. I, I love it already. <laughs> Cause I've lived that myself for sure. I can't wait. And any, uh, before we let you go, do you have any book recommendations for us? Reading anything good lately? Uh, well, I mean, I, yeah, but the things I've been reading, I will not recommend. Uh, <laughs> I, tend, I tend to read really nerdy books. But um, I would, you know, just given what our conversation here, one book I, I really, really love, and I, I point people to it all the time, is a book called What Would Jesus Deconstruct um, by Jack Caputo. And it is a, it's a basic pr- primer, uh, primer, primer on deconstruction, like actual, the philosophical concept, right? So a lot of people are deconstructing their faith right now and they're using it in a, in a way that's fine. It's, it's kind of colloquial or like popularized, but that word deconstruction actually has its roots in philosophy mm-hmm. and it's related. It's not unrelated. And so Jack Caputo um, takes that scholarship and breaks it down into very 
very popular language, um, and it, it's a really helpful introduction to how to see deconstruction as something that's not scary, like a free fall down Alice's rabbit hole, but can actually be the ground for something really beautiful and amazing um, in our in our faith. And it's an, it's actually not a new book. It's maybe 20 years old at this point or 15 years old. But um, yeah, so I'd recommend that one. Well, we'll keep listening to you on the Bible for Normal People podcast. And uh, maybe after you finish that book, we'll have you back on. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks again. Yeah, take Thanks care. Man. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you got something out of the episode today. Check the show notes in your podcast app for all the links and references that were made, or you can find it all at followingthefire.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash followingthefire to become a patron. And of course, we'd love it if you rate the podcast and share it with others. See you later. And I'll give you all my heart. Don't you know it's all I have Even on my heart Can't compare with what you're worth I have been running Almost all my life But you You always chase me down